0: Again, head on over to FreedadCourse.com, get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory One, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow this is the military veteran dad podcast dads welcome to the very first bonus episode for the month of april if you missed monday's episode. What we're going to start doing is on the first Thursday of every month, we're going to bring either an author, some type of person, maybe outside the veteran community, but someone that can add value to our lives as dads and help us come home. And then from that, the rest of the month, we're going to take what we talked about in that bonus episode and continue the conversation on our website at militaryveterandad.com through our blog posts. And I would encourage you to comment on those blog posts because that's where we'll go ahead and engage in different conversations and topics and begin to start to unwind this topic of having those 10 minutes of connection with our kids and really some of the struggles that can prevent us from making that connection. It sounds really simple in this episode what we're talking about. But at the end of the day, there are days where you're like, it seems like it's a mile away from having that 10-minute connection. We dive into a lot of different areas with this. Alyssa touches a lot of different nerves with them being a dad and how that psychology plays out in, in adults and in our kids. And this episode really just goes down to the core and cracks her wide open. Before we get started, I'd just like to ask if you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Those reviews are the lifeblood of any new podcast, and they help us climb the charts and help us reach even more military veteran dads. Remember, we have a mission to bring every dad home and everything we can do to try to connect more dads to this mission and this information, the more dads we're going to bring home and the more dads we're going to make an impact in the lives of our children. Now, without further ado, now on with my conversation with Alyssa Van Langeveld. Good morning. Today on the show, I have Alyssa Van Langeveld, and she is an expert within psych- child psychology, and she's here to join us and help us connect with our kids in simple ways. And, uh, Lisa, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Ben. I'm glad to be here.
0: Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: All right. I am a university adjunct professor in a family studies department. I've been teaching at the university for 10 years. My areas of research include interpersonal and group communication and family communication as a part of that, as well as generalized child development and family processes and parenting. Um, I went to college for 10 years, studying all of that, and then I've been teaching at the university for 10 years, and I'm really passionate about it. Um, My focus is on parenting and connecting to children in meaningful ways that it benefits both the parents and benefits the kids. I'm also a parent. I have four kids at home. My oldest is 10. My youngest is three and I work obviously. So I'm invested and want to find ways to connect to my kids meaningfully in a day that has limited hours. Everybody has limited hours. So how do we make the most of that? And called 10 Minutes Together, which talks about the importance of spending 10 minutes together one-on-one with your kids. And I really believe it.
0: What got you started, but then what sparked your uh, your passion towards uh, children and family?
1: So I, for a long time, ever since I was a child, being successful in my family mattered to me. So my parents divorced when I was young. I was nine, and I was raised in a single-parent family with five kids. I'm right in the middle of five. And we grew up in a really conservative community, and the people around us were really kind, but I definitely felt the message that our family was broken, that our family was less than, and that hurt. And I was convinced that I was going to win that role of parenting in the next generation. So I was going to be the best possible parent that I could. And so for me, the tools to become the best meant I'm going to study it and become an expert as best as possible. And I did. I, I studied children and family and parenting for 10 years and then um, started having all my own kids, too. So it's really personal for me. It comes from a deep sense of this is something that these can be successful. If you don't look like other families, if you have barriers in your families or setbacks or struggles in your families, none of those should be an excuse for why your family's not doing well. And so how do we overcome those things? It feels really personal and means a lot to me.
0: I like that. And so much of Vents is our childhood that a lot of us don't ever fully understand them. And Tony Robbins always asks the question of whose love you craved the most growing up in his uh, seminars. And like that question, he can unravel a thread a mile long of, of their life and who they are today. And and you wanted to be someone differently than that person. You craved a, a family that was together and felt loving. And that's awesome that you went out into the world and tried to create a dent into it and end the chain of broken families.
1: Yeah. Well, and what I really wanted to do was make an impact for individuals within those families, like families come in all sorts of different sizes and styles and and configurations, and I find that to be less important than the relationships inside those families. So it's not just about creating a certain type of family, it's about wherever you, how can that situation be meaningful and powerful and important and as successful as possible.
0: Go ahead and tell us a little bit about what the, the structure of 10 minutes looked like and how as a dad, we could help set this up in our life.
1: All right, so- 10 minutes together is based on finding the sweet spot between time spent together with your children as well as the reality that we're all busy. So how do we make it long enough to be meaningful and short enough to be doable? And I've settled on this concept of 10 minutes together. There's nothing magical about 10 minutes except that it is absolutely doable and it is long enough to be really meaningful. So the focus is on -on one-on-one connection time we create a variety of systems or groups. The first one is the entire family. So big think of it, a big circle wrapped around mom, dad, all the kids, and anyone else that might be in that big family system. And that, that's an identity. That's a group culture that matters, and connection there matters. But what also matters are subsystems within that group, so parents, create a subsystem, mom and dad, and then each parent with each child is their own subsystem. We call those dyads for two. There's each dyad matters. So mom to every kid, dad individually to every kid, dad to mom, and then also each child to each other. All of those subsystems, all of those dyads create opportunities for meaningful, important connection in the family relationship. So my focus then, this 10 minutes together, is on the dyad of the parent to child. And dads are a really important dyad, a really important relationship in children's lives. Across the board, the research on children shows that kids that have an involved emotional relationship with their fathers, they do better in every area. Academically, cognitively, physically, emotionally, socially, in every area, kids that have involved dads they do better. And the, rever- the reverse of that is also true. Dads that have a more involved and meaningful relationship with their children, they are doing better. They find parenting to be more satisfying. They um, generally have better well-being in their own self-esteem. So this connection in these dyads makes a big difference in our lives. So 10 minutes together is about getting that connection in the real world when we also have to get kids to school, do our jobs, mow the lawn, do all the other things in the day. Um, There are seven steps that I've laid out for 10 minutes together, but the steps are not particularly important to achieve every time. It's just kind of a guideline to get the most out of that 10 minutes together. If it's not working or steps get skipped, that's no problem. The heart of the message is all connection matters. Every time you connect to your kids, every time you spend time with them, or non-verbally look at them, smile, um, hug, all of that matters. So to get the most out of 10 minutes together, there are seven steps and um, steps down, we'll have a printable that will be available. So um, you can print off these seven steps as a review, as well as some ideas on how to spend time together. So the first step is to set the environment. As best as possible, one-on-one time should be alone with as few distractions as possible. So go into another room if there are other family members in the house, if that's possible, and put away your phone put away other distractions, turn off the TV, put away your other distractions. So set the environment is number one. Number two, have a clear start. The importance of a clear start is that it really sets this time apart from other time in the day to show I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I value you. You're important to me. So the way you have a clear start is verbally. You just say, hey, we're going to have 10 minutes together. In our family, 10 minute time is something we've been doing consistently over time. So we just talk about it as 10 minutes together. So I can say to my kids, Hey, we're going to have 10 minute time. Or my kids actually say it to me too. If they're having a hard time, they're feeling disconnected. They'll come to me and say, Hey mom, can we have 10 minute time? Which is a pretty cool way for them to regulate their own emotions and work through problems and and seek me. Which on the best days
0: are unregulated.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. They're all unregulated. And for me too. I mean, this is something that we spend our lives trying to learn how to do. So have a clear start. Um, If it's not something that's familiar in your family, then just say, hey, I've got 10 minutes and I want to spend it just with you. Because that's a really cool message to tell your kids. Like, I have time and I want to be with you. So that's step number two, have a clear start. Step number three is to connect at the beginning and to connect verbally and non verbally. The verbal connection is something simple where you just say, I love spending time with you, or I'm glad I get to have this time, or I'm excited to be with you. The verbal connection matters, but the non verbal connection matters even more. The non verbal connection is any way you use your body um, to communicate to your child that you're excited to be with them and Um, you want to be with them. So what that includes is eye contact. Are you looking at them? A smile, hug, Um, you can stroke their hair, rub their back, uh, pat them on the head, you know, give them a side squeeze. There are so many ways we can non-verbally connect. Now the reason the non-verbal connection matters so much is because it is such a powerful way to communicate. In fact, when we are communicating, if our non-verbal and our verbal messages do not match, the non-verbal will win every single time and let me give you an example of that if i say to my kids i really love spending time with you that's pretty flat okay maybe i believe you but if i say it like this i really love spending time with you that sends a different message and if i say uh yeah i really love spending time with you yeah it's a totally different message so we we need to make sure that these messages match and if they don't let the nonverbal win so how are we showing them non-verbally that we're present, we're excited to be there? This also includes um, how we listen and we do active listening or if we're paying attention and looking at them with our eyes. Um, so connect. That's step three. Step four is engage. It's do the thing. Whatever is the thing. If it's playing, if it's reading a book, if it's doing a puzzle, if it's climbing on the jungle gym, if it's um, looking for bugs outside, whatever is the thing. And included in that principle that we'll have available for your listeners, I'll include a whole long list of ways that dads can engage with their kids so that you can come up with so many ways to do this quick 10 minutes together. At the end of the 10 minutes, have a clear end. And one thing that I do is set a timer for my kids. And the timer is not meant to say like, "Ugh, I wanna get out of this time as quickly as possible, but it's meant to put some, some boundaries around the time so that we know that life is gonna continue on and we have to get other things done. So it's going to come to an end eventually. So when my little timer goes off, I'll connect again. And then that's step six, connect again at the end, both verbally and non-verbally. Another squeeze, another hug, eye contact, a smile, and thank them. Thanks for spending this time for me. I love spending time with you. We'll do it again. And the we'll do it again really matters. Um, Because what we're trying to communicate to our kids overall is that they matter to us so much that we're going to prioritize that time together so we have to do that consistently. And that's step seven, be consistent. It doesn't have to be every day. We're not looking for perfection here. We're looking for meaningful connection. And the bottom line, all connection matters. So if you do this one day a week, you're winning. Connection matters. If you do it three days a week, you're winning. Connection matters. If you, could, if you have multiple kids, I have four kids. I never get all four kids done in a day, almost never. But I get two done every day and then the next day I do the other two and we swap back and forth or my husband might connect with a cup with two on one day and I do the other two so it's really fluid and perfection is not the goal but every time we do this it makes a difference all connection matters
0: I like that and I didn't really know what I was doing but for a long time I used to read to all three of my kids at the same time they'd each pick a book they'd all sit down together it was always absolute chaos <laughs> just like two and a half weeks ago I decided I don't know where it came from, but I was going to just sit down and read each book in their own bed. Each get a book, one book, and they would each wait and they wouldn't be able to interrupt each other's time. And it would just be that time together. And the physical touch you were talking about, like my son will like cuddle up closer and like want me to wrap around it. Like there's a moment where he feels more connected and safe in that moment as I'm reading the book. And I've never really felt him he's a boy that's four years old, so he's always on and crazy. And like this is like the one moment where he like kind of slows down and calms down and almost to the point where he'd fall asleep, which he rarely ever does on you because he's just always on. And I can instantly start to see that impact where Yeah, the-
1: I love that
0: getting an impact on them.
1: You know, what I really love about that is you really have figured out like that one-on-one time matters for him and he responds differently. He mellows out and he wants to have this physical touch and, and affection. And his love
0: language is physical touch, but more of like yeah. as a boy, it's roughing rough housing. But there there is a different side that he's looking for, and I'm creating the space for it to be filled. And I don't always have enough of the detective mindset, but I've always generally entered the mindset that whenever a child is acting one way, is usually because there's a deficit, some completely other area of their life. That's nothing to do with whatever they're acting out. It's either a gap from our connection or something at school. And I would almost say like 90, you probably can give a better statistic, but I feel like it's 90%, whatever they're doing is just an opposite reaction of some gap in their life that hasn't been filled or some causality effect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, what I look at with my children when they're misbehaving and what is true of children when they are acting out or even if it's not misbehaving but they're wild and they're you know hard to calm down, connection is what all kids need. And so when my kids are having a meltdown, I think, okay, they're feeling disconnected and we need to we need to connect again or if they're acting out at school, like they're feeling disconnected. So the solution to so many different behavioral problems or struggles is this kind of a connection that your kids are feeling constantly that they have their parents connection. And kids never grow out of that need. Adults almost never grow out of that need. Like think about your parents. I still want my parents to, you know, tell me I'm doing a good job and that they're proud of me and I'm grown um so it 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 matters for all ages of kids and it's never too late to start if this isn't something that you've been doing for all of your years of parenting it's never too late to start it all matters every single time we connect we're doing good things for our kids every time
0: and i've often i haven't had a chance to do it yet but it's in the it's in the bucket list to go on one-on-one trips with my kids like far away to just be one-on-one to, to understand life when they're a teenager help them explore who they are like i feel like that's something in 2019 parents don't do a lot is we get so caught up in the rat race of everything that is our life that we don't do a good job. And that's why I don't think kids know what they want to do when they go to college. Cause they had no exposure to what life has for opportunities to really understand how they fit into the overall world out there.
1: Yeah. And I love that you're wanting to kind of coach them through that and be there with them while they're figuring those things out. I think that's really cool. You know, one more thing I love about you reading with your son and him wanting to cuddle in and snuggle with you. I think especially for our boys, as they get older, they lose that socially acceptable way to physically connect that we don't cuddle our boys as long as we maybe cuddle our girls or as they get older, they don't get a chance to do that. And I think that leaves them with some real disconnection in their relationships. And if you can hold on to having those physical connections with your boys, especially as long as possible, I think it really matters. And it doesn't always have to be cuddling while you're reading. It can be like a pat on the leg while you're you know, driving in the car or like a, a pat on the back as you're um, walking out the door. But like physically touching our kids benefits them. And, and it brings in, you know, neurological um, hormones of dopamine and serotonin that are giving them happy feelings to that connection. And I, and I sometimes think we rob our little boys of that as they get older. So good job, Dad. You're doing a great job.
0: There was a book, uh, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters by Meg Meagher. Mm-hmm. And that one, the one statistic I've repeated a couple times in this podcast is just hugging my daughter that there's a 60% chance less chance we'll have sex by the age of 12. Like Mm -hmm. that one void of physical touch Mm -hmm. has that big of an impact. And then if you think about like just the other, if you be more intentional with your 10 minutes and through the whole experience, I can't imagine the far reaching. um, It's literally like planting a thousand seeds in one year and just getting to grow until 20 years later and you see her personality. And there's probably going to be moments where I'll see something in her as a young adult to be like something I did 20 years ago, somehow shaped that uh, that version of the woman that she became.
1: You know, there is actually some specific research that shows that time spent one-on-one with kids early on continues to benefit those kids years later. That the kids who got that four or five years later, they're still kids that are doing better at school, have a little bit better emotional regulation. So you're right, you're planting a thousand seeds. And every time you do it is another seed. So the goal is not, I better be planting a seed every single day. And if I'm not, then I'm failing. There is no failing here. There is only growth here. That every time you do it you're doing good
0: and as veterans we often get hung up on our service as our legacy but this our legacy of our services in the past and the one thing that's continuing in the future far beyond who we exist is our kids and so we have to transition that mindset of our legacy and I've best heard the description of legacy is planting seeds in a garden you never get to see grow and that's what all these little 10 minute things are is little seeds in a garden that you'll never get to see the full tree grow to its potential yeah. But you know that's going to be there. And that's your, le- that's your next legacy looking towards the future. And if you hold yourself onto the past, there's nothing but regret, maybe second doubt, self-doubt, undoubt with emotion, maybe sadness if you lost a, a friend in the military. But the future is really where we can really start to make a- an impact in a way that we yeah. weren't able to do with our service. It's noble, but it's not the long-lasting legacy that's going to continue on.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I think is great about connecting with our kids in these small ways is that you're right. It builds this legacy where they benefit for years to come. But you do actually get to see the benefits immediately. Like on day one, if if your listeners go home today and they go sit down and spend 10 minutes with one of their kids, at the end of that 10 minutes, they will walk away and feel good. And like get a pat on the back and be like, I was a good dad today and I did it. And so immediately we get those effects and immediately our kids feel those effects. Our kids will walk away being like, my dad's awesome. My dad just spent 10 minutes with me at full attention, nothing distracting him. That was awesome. So we get the immediate benefits and the long-term benefits, that legacy of being that kind of parent, that kind of connector.
0: I also didn't connect this together, but, uh, my daughter started, uh, kindergarten we started a new school in the town we live in and it was first grade and I was driving the very first day and we drove by a diner and I'm a big breakfast guy and I was like this could be perfect so we started maybe like twice a month we'll go for breakfast before dropping her off at school and like that is literally and she'll just have pancakes and just we'll just talk but like there's always the old guys at the the restaurant we're at and I can only imagine I often think like what they're thinking about like there's a dad making a dent in the universe in a way that they maybe never did Is often what they'll tell me as they walk out or that their daughter's way too old for anything like like that, or just appreciate those moments or reminding me how small they are. But like that even itself is something that's going to create time and attention. And
1: And she won't forget that. No, she'll always remember that she got to have those breakfast dates with her dad.
0: She holds on to him for a lot. So I have one, I was thinking about the idea of 10 minutes. And when I, the podcast you recommended me listen to uh, before getting together today. How could this play into punishment as a shift in how you handle? Cause generally the 99% of the punishment methodology is isolation to remove them from the situation and just to breathe. And sometimes it involves shouting. Sometimes it involves kicking. Sometimes it involves timeouts in your, in your bedroom. How have you been able to take the 10 minute and maybe use this as a different methodology to, change the behavior?
1: Oh, I love that. That's such a good question. So you're right. The, the parenting practice that we've seen most of in the last 10, 15 years is timeouts. That when, you, when things aren't going well, we send our kids to go be alone. And sometimes that means we yell at them or scream at them or slam the doors and then they're to be alone. But the most recent research on brain development and on relationships shows that that disconnection when something bad is happening isn't necessarily the best way. Now it's better than other options. It's better than hitting our kids. The, yeah. Hitting our kids is, is is a lower option above that. So, if you think you're going to hit your kids, put them in timeout. Great, and that you're you're winning. You're doing a good job. But if you have something else to give, instead of doing a timeout, we do what's been called a time in. And so your kid's having a freak out, they're melting down. And so we're going to go do a time in and that is 10 minutes together. And my kids will do this, both they'll do it and ask me for that. And I am able, because it's something that they're familiar with in our family, I can do it in reverse. So my five-year-old can be having a full screaming meltdown and I can look at her and say, do you want to go do 10 minute time? And she'll be crying and screaming and be like, yes, and she's still angry. And then we go into a room together and we just do an activity. We don't even necessarily talk about the problem. We don't have to go through and solving it. Sometimes we do that, but that doesn't have to be how it works. And that connection Calms her down. So, in the past, in um, parenting research, we've looked at how to solve problems. All of parenting research was about discipline. How do we solve problems? How do we prevent problems? How do we stop our kids from, you know, dropping out of school or, you know, getting arrested? Or it was all about preventing problems. But in about the last 15 years, there's been a shift toward what we call positive psychology. And what that means is we're not just trying to get our kids to not be in trouble. We're trying to get our kids to thrive and we want to thrive. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. And so that positive psychology is all about positive parenting and the positive parenting wraps its, head, you know, its arms around connection. Connection is how we positively parent our kids. And what we see in the discipline realm is that when kids feel really connected to their parents, their behavioral problems decrease. And that happens over time. Like if you're doing 10 minutes together and you're doing it for a month, six months, overall, you're gonna have fewer behavioral problems. So over time. Second, it happens immediately. Just like I was given the example about my daughter and doing 10 minute time. Um, in the middle of a meltdown, in the middle of a behavioral problem, connection can shut that down and can reorient the child to, okay, so now we can start to problem solve. And then after the connection, we teach. So the word discipline comes from a Latin word, um, disculplay, and I might be saying that wrong because I don't speak Latin. But the that root of that word is to teach, that we discipline our kids to teach them the proper way to behave. So shifting away from punishing for misbehavior toward teaching proper behavior. So 10 minutes together allows us to stop the, the wrong um, behavior and now teach them. Like when you're mad, you don't get to hit your sister, or when you, you know, go to school, you have to stay on task and do work, or you have to be home on time, or whatever it is the thing, the, the rule that was broken, the focus should be on let's connect, and now teach you the right way to behave. And sometimes there are still consequences for misbehavior. Um, My 10 year old hit her little sister with her lunchbox on the way home from school a couple days ago. So I talked to her, what's going on? Why did you do that? It's not okay to do that, and here's the consequence. You're not gonna have electronics for a couple of days. But the goal, the purpose, the heart of that was teaching her the right way to behave and connecting to her, not just coming up with a consequence for her misbehavior.
0: Do you incorporate um, uh, validation in your 10 minutes of like emotional validation?
1: So that would be like next level parenting, but yes, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Um, Because I think
0: so far, like so many times parents deny the emotional response that their kids are having and it's not our job to judge it as right or wrong. It's real to them as real as getting burned almost. And for us to deny them that just causes them to shift into it's not safe to feel that. And then they just start bottling things up and become rebellious teenagers probably.
1: So you're 100% right for kids, but you're also 100% right for grownups. Like how many times do grownups do this same thing yeah. where they are not able to identify their emotions, they bottle them up, they are you know, exhibiting those emotions in inappropriate ways. But yes, so next level, 10 minutes together, next level connection is being your child's emotion coach. And being your child's emotion coach is actually really good self-therapy too. Because I truly believe all adults need to have some you know can improve in their emotional regulation so here's what that would look like being an emotion coach for your kid number one teach your kid to identify what the emotion is and again this is good self-therapy for adults what is it exactly you're feeling are you feeling angry are you feeling disappointed are you feeling mad are you feeling frustrated are you feeling embarrassed all of those different types of emotions manifest themselves like anger But there are so many other ones that are behind there. So first level, emotion coach for your parents. Teach your kids to identify what is the emotion that they're feeling. Second step, whatever you're feeling is fine. All feelings are fine. Anger, jealousy, frustration, hatred. All feelings are fine. Third level, not all behaviors are fine. So you can feel all of those terrible emotions, but how you behave has limits. We don't hurt other people. We don't hurt ourselves. We are accountable and responsible for the things in front of us. You have to go to work or you have to go to school. Even if you're angry, even if you, you know, hate your teacher, we still have um, behavioral limits. We still have expectations.
0: I'm always reminding myself that uh, emotions are meant to be felt and understood, not suppressed. Like
1: absolutely really
0: just need to feel them and understand what it's indicating Because they are the indications of what's going on, and the more you suppress, the worse you feel. And so, each your emotions in every meal is kind of (laughs) just came to my head right there. Uh, But (laughs) uh, like just being able to feel it. And what are some questions that you use to help them identify? Because sometimes I struggle with the right probing question to get them to identify what they're what they're actually feeling.
1: So. The one step is to ask, so what are you feeling? But you're right. Kids, they just don't know. They aren't self-aware enough or don't have enough experience. And I don't like leading to, them
0: either, like giving them the word, because then I feel like I'm just then I'm projecting whatever I think they're feeling, which isn't accurate either.
1: You know what, though? But that's actually a good way to help them. Because if you project that or if you say that, like you seem angry or you seem frustrated or you seem sad, it gives your child a chance to evaluate. Is it sad? Yes or no? And so then they'll say like, no, I'm not sad. I'm mad, not sad. And then you can continue to coach them. Okay, you seem disappointed. And so trying to provide those suggestions about like what you think their emotion is that they're feeling, that's actually a great idea because it gives them a chance to either say, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what I'm feeling. And maybe they didn't know that. Maybe they couldn't articulate that or they get to say, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm feeling. I'm feeling something else. And here's what it is. And let me um, share a couple of books, kids books that will help. I, we use them at our house and I think they're great. There, there are a couple of books about emotions and for kids. I can give you some links and you can put them in the, in your show notes, but the first step is just showing what the emotions are. And so it'll be a picture of a kid that looks like really angry and it'll just say, I am angry. And it's trying to teach children to connect the feeling of anger with the nonverbal behavior of anger. So remember, we talked about how important the nonverbal behavior is and that we most of our communication from human to human is nonverbal. So we learn how to show other people we're angry, and we act out in anger without even always knowing mentally that what I'm feeling is anger. But we're acting it, we're So the first step is children's books that just identify emotions. So kids have this wide vocabulary of different styles of emotion. Like it's not just sad or angry. There's so many other emotions in there. Jealousy, disappointment, frustration, fear. That's the first step. Second step, and I love this book. I think it's good for adults and for kids. It's called Rabbit Listened. And it's about this little boy and something terrible happens. And then all of his friends come to him one at a time and they try to help him and his friends are all different animals. So the snake comes over and he says, hey, let's go make it terrible for someone else, which is a strategy some people do when they're feeling bad emotions. They go and try and hurt other people or make it worse for other people. Um, and the ostrich comes and says, hey, let's pretend like there is no problem, which is a strategy a lot of people do. Like, no, I don't have a problem. There's nothing wrong here. So this, this whole range of, of friends come and they, they show all of these unhealthy ways to handle this working through this bad thing that happened to the kid, and then the rabbit comes, and the rabbit just listens, and the rabbit, you know, says, I'll sit next to you, and the little boy is, just lets the rabbit sit by him for a while, and then the little boy on his own starts to process through all of those pieces, and the rabbit just stays with him, so I think that's good for adults, and I think that is such They're having huge, huge meltdowns. It's not my job to fix it. Maybe I'll help them identify what that feeling is. I'll talk to them about their limits on how to behave when they feel that feeling. But really, they get to just have that feeling. No feelings are wrong. No feelings are bad. And so just feel that feeling. And while you're processing through that feeling, you might feel like you want to go hurt other people. You might feel like you want to pretend like it's not there. You you might feel like you want to rage and scream at the world. All of those are okay. But the rabbit just sits there with the boy while he goes through all of those feelings on his own. And then at the end, he's okay. And they go on and they go back to playing. But I, I see my job as a parent a lot like that, that I'm there to help my kid process through all of those emotions. I don't punish them for their emotions. have whatever emotions they want. As adults, we can have whatever emotions happen too. But how we act with those emotions has some limits on it. And in the end, sitting with your child, sitting with your friend, as they go through all of these emotions, that's one of, some of the best things that we can do to support our friends and our kids
0: I think you'd like this there is a a speech that I, I heard a few months ago and it was be the rainbow to someone's storm and essentially that storms only come after or rainbows only come after a storm and I've taught this to my daughter as far as relationship to kindness like you see someone having a storm like be their rainbow like whatever you think they can need like to show up in their life to just be that rainbow And somehow that rainbow idea, because they all love rainbows and it's translated. And I would ask her if she was what rainbow she gave away. And sometimes she'd say she gave away a double rainbow. And like that also, I think teaching them to also emotionally coach kids who have that look on their face, like be the rainbow, be the friend that you wish you had sometimes when you have the look on your face.
1: Yeah, I love that. And you know what, what has to happen in order to be that rainbow is one, you have to be present. You can't run away. You can't not be there age. So be present even while people are going through really crappy things, even while your kids are going through crappy things, don't run away. Just be present with them. You don't have to fix it. Just be there.
0: I like that. And when you run in through the the 10 minutes and the emotions, how do you balance trying to not be their friend? Because that's something that I've struggled with growing up. I didn't have a lot of friends in my life. So I've always had this constant feeling of trying to be liked. And that's also perpetuated in my parenting and trying to create a barrier of discipline, but then being firm, but then also not being their friend, but being their parent, but then also wanting to be their friend so that they can feel safe. How do you handle that through all of this as well?
1: Good. That's a really good question. So in the parenting research, I've been identified a couple different parenting styles. And all of us fall into one of these four different styles. And it's about patterns. It's not like, you know, sometimes I seem like all of the different styles, but overall, I want to be in this particular style. So the four styles are based on warmth and connection with your children. So families can be and parents can have high warmth and high connection or low warmth and low connection. And then the second criteria is boundaries and limits and expectations, firmness, control. Um, And you can be high on that or low on that. So when you have these high lows, it creates these four typologies. The goal and across the board what the research says is all kids do better in, in parents that have a high level of warmth and connection and also a high level of limits and expectations so when we run into that risk of feeling like am I being my kid's friend the way be be warm and engaging with them but also maintain high expectations in this family we don't hit or we you know do our homework or whatever is the expectations we kind of fail and slip more into that friend category when we're not helping our children become adults we're not teaching them how to behave properly and we don't have those limits so that's called authoritative authoritative parenting is high warmth and connection, high expectations. And as I'm making parenting decisions, I often check in and say, okay, so am I having high limits, high expectations here? Am I having high warmth here? Now the other three categories then are, you know, different variations of that. So high warmth and connection and low expectations that is the group that is more like your friend and that's called permissive parenting where there's kind of like whatever you do is fine I don't care um, I'm more concerned about not making you mad or criticizing you than I am about making sure that you are that you have high expectations that you're doing the things that are required of you uh, those kids struggle they they don't do as well as kids that have high expectations there and then the other two categories um, there's low warmth low connection, and high expectations, and that is called an authoritarian style, and that style actually crops up a lot in military families, because it does mimic a lot of the dynamics that are found in military service, where it's like, I'm the boss, you do what I say, there's no questions asked, and I'm not going to cuddle you and and coddle you about it, and sometimes families, parents take that home, and then they replicate that same action in their families, so authoritarian is and kids in authoritarian families often rebel. They get to a certain age or they find ways to break those rules and break out under those high expectations. Now, again, remember, the high expectations are not the problem. What the problem is there is the low warmth or low connection. And so if, you know, someone's listening and they're feeling like, oh, you know what, that's me. I am that authoritarian parent. That is how I do it. It's because I say so. That's why. I'm the I'm the. The dad, that's why. The way you solve that, the way you up level your parenting, then is you build in that high connection. You build in that high warmth. And 10 minutes together will do that. So go ahead and keep your high expectations. That's not the problem. The problem is, is the warmth there. And then the last category is low expectations and also low warmth. And those are called disengaged parents. And those kids, they're just disconnected from their parents almost entirely and they struggle as well. So, bottom line the goal is high warmth, high connection, as well as high expectations. And those are the best style of parents. It's called authoritative parenting. Um, if you're feeling like, I don't want to be my friend, then what you do is you bring in those expectations. You enforce those expectations of your kids.
0: I like that because then it, it feels, I, I can feel safe. And i think a lot of even just being authoritative is matching your actions and your words and just following through that. You said they needed to do X and then making sure they did it and like that in itself gives the, the responsibility, the accountability that you're an authority in their life. But at the same time, by having the opposite side, it keeps both sides of the coin healthy.
1: Yeah, you want to be an authority in your life. Kids want to know that there's someone in their life that they can look to to as they have questions, as they're trying to figure out how to be in this world. But they also want somebody in their life that's going to love them and nurture them and is going to be a safe place for them throughout their life. So our goal is on both of those categories, and we can do it. It's that high warmth
0: and that high expectations. And I was thinking about, for dads coming home, that as veterans we have a high ego. We have an identity tied to the military. So we already probably have a little bit more of the authoritative mindset with responsibility, do what I said. Um, But at the same time, that opposite side of connecting and feeling like a stranger in your own home, I can see these little 10 minutes is almost like, chipping away at a stone slowly. That is maybe even, maybe even your heart, maybe your heart is even closed off and these little 10 minutes are just chipping slowly away that allowing you to still be the authoritative person you want to be. But at the same time, building that connection with your kids to help them realize that dad's home because it is, it's almost, it's a two way street. You're coming home, but they're also coming home to you being there. And there's a huge, I think a lot of veterans, we get caught up that our service is noble, so we start putting our family time on credit card debt and yes. there's so much debt to build that when you come home, even after a deployment or four years in the military or 20, even there's such an amount of deficit in that connection that this is a simple way that even if it's a 10 minute phone call, if you're deployed, like in whatever way you can do, making sure that you're not just putting it all on your credit card because eventually it's going to explode and you're not going you're going to be strangers to your own kids.
1: Yeah, well, if you put it on a credit card, like, like you're talking about, you're now starting the race, you know, 10 steps, 15 steps, 40 steps behind, moving on and, and connecting together. So this is some research that I did want to talk to you about as well, um, called boundary ambiguity. And this boundary ambiguity research came from a researcher named Pauline Voss out of the University of Minnesota. And she's, it started as research on military families who had members of their families who are missing in action. And this was way back in the Vietnam War. And that families who had members who were, who were listed missing in action, they were not quite able to move on with their lives because they weren't grieving the loss or the death of a family member. They weren't sure what had happened to that family member. It was kind of this ambiguous, un unspoken hole in their family, and it was really, really hard for them. So researchers started studying this idea of where is the boundary around this family, and we talked at the beginning about, you know, we, we draw the circle around who is in our family, and when somebody leaves and out of that circle, like through a deployment, it, it changes the boundary, and the boundary is a little bit ambiguous, and, you know, unclear of who's in and who's out, and what does that mean. This also has to do with the roles that Um, expectations on members in the family and how we solve problems together as a family how is that and when somebody leaves like in a deployment that changes so this research on boundary ambiguity finds um, they're looking at what it means to be physically present with your family or physically absent as well as psychologically present or absent and it creates these difficulties so you can find yourself in a situation where you are physically absent and psychologically absent and those I think might be some of those um, dads that you think are putting their family time on the credit card that like I'm, I'm gone I'm deployed but I'm just going to focus on my my service right now and I'll catch up with my family later and, and that's hard these are uninvolved parents it's hard for the parent and it's hard for the kids um, those families are kind of grieving the loss of this parent even though they're not actually gone. So there's also the the strategy of being physically absent but psychologically present, and you just talked about like a phone call or it can be a text, a FaceTime. There are a lot of strategies to be psychologically Emily with your kids, even if you're not physically present. Um, some connection traditions might be a nightly phone call or a text or or looking at a photograph every night or videotaping yourself, reading a story so your kids can then hear that story every night before they go to bed, texts during the day, social media connection. There's a lot of ways to still be psychologically present, even if you're not physically um, present. So then we go to the flip side when you come home. So now you're physically present in the home. And what we see with a lot of military families, and this happens in other um, areas as well, is that being physically present, but psychologically absent, so you're not actually engaged in the family, you're not sure what role you play in the family or how to do that is actually also really difficult for kids and really difficult for families. Um, and this is that boundary ambiguity, like dad's home now, but but is dad, you know, going to work or, or is he here all day or does he help with the dishes or, does, or do we not ask him to do things because we're not quite sure if he's ready to do that. That ambiguity is really hard and what the research shows is that there's a little bit of a honeymoon period when um, military military veterans come home of about four months. And in the first four months, it's kind of okay. Everyone's just so happy that you're home and there's this honeymoon. But starting at about four months, that ambiguity, that, un, that lack of clarity on, you know, dad's here, but what does that actually mean? Starts to break down and starts to show, you know, some behavioral problems in the kids, some... It, maybe sets ba- setbacks in family functioning. And that lasts usually about four to nine months. And in that four to nine months, so if you're in that period, the way you move through that period successfully is you talk about it. You got to be really clear about like, what, what am I doing in this house? What roles do I have? Do I put the kids to bed at night? Do I help with dinner? Do I do the grocery shopping? Do I mow the lawn? Do, am I in charge of the cars? What is it I'm doing? And a lot of the times in families, these things are not spoken about explicitly. They're just kind of come up and then and they get worked out over time. But when you have a situation where someone in that family, someone pivotal in that family is coming and going or has been absent for a period of time, it's sometimes hard to like roll back into those expectations without making it really clear. So I suggest sit down with your spouse or your partner and be really clear. I want to be more involved with the kids or it's really hard for me to be with the kids right now and I really, if you can still be in charge of putting the bed or or whatever, but just be really clear about what role you're playing in that home and then connecting to your kids. Um, even if you're not the one that's getting them ready for school or putting them to bed at night, this 10 minutes together still matters so that they have that, like, like dad's home and he's with me. He's psychologically with me. He's giving me his attention. He's not still gone. He's not still deployed because that's really hard in this boundary ambiguity research is this idea of physically present and psychologically present. And I think that that's a good um, kind of self-check-in for, for veterans coming home to be like, okay, I'm here, I'm home, but am I psychologically home? And how do I do that in 10 minutes together is how you can do that with your kids. And a really explicit conversation is how you can help do that with your spouse or your partner.
0: Did you see the viral video of the Taekwondo coming home the deal where it,
1: yes. Oh my gosh. Those make me cry every single time. They're so tender.
0: It reminded me of something that before he takes his blindfold off, there is this internal tension in his kid's heart. And the moment he sees dad, the tension's gone. And that tension, I think is what you're... And then almost just the abundant emotion that they run on is probably that four-month honeymoon. Like, there's that buildup of tension of emotion and it runs its course. But then... Just like in marriage, there's a honeymoon phase and you got to figure out how to do life together again. Same idea.
1: Yeah, and you know what I loved about that video? The the kid still had his blindfold on and the dad used a nickname for him. And the kid knew, he knew, this is my dad, but he couldn't, but but wait, so psychologically, my dad is here, that was my name. But physically, is he really here? Is that really him? Is that really him? And he was struggling and struggling to get the blindfold off. Oh my gosh, I thought that was so tender. Those moments, they really, really like... They they really
0: sit they get me going every time. They're like, beautiful, they're yeah, beautiful. they're beautiful, beautiful.
1: But it's hard. It really illustrates how hard it is. It's hard. It's hard for parents and it's hard for kids.
0: Is there something um, we could do differently in the honeymoon stage to either prolong it that would help that honeymoon phase through that nine month overall time that we don't like burn through it within the four months? I'm not sure the energy or the excitement. Is there a different methodology you think that we could change to help that four month be longer time frame?
1: Yes. So it and not only just be a longer time frame, but with some really careful preparation in that early stage, you can avoid the the rough patch that's that's coming ahead for a lot of families. So the way that you do that is to integrate into the family clearly. So have these clear conversations with your spouse about what what role do I have here? What am I in charge of here? Or how do we, you know, how do we balance laundry together? Or I know that um, a lot of veterans coming home aren't, don't quite want to like, like step on the toes of their partner who's been running the show while they've been gone. And, and I think that's really respectful. But you're back now and you want to be involved. And so have these conversations with your partner. I think in those first four months, the family just spends their time celebrating, celebrating this absence that whatever happens and the behavior is fine like dad helps or dad doesn't help it's fine dad is you know going to work or dad isn't going to work it's fine whatever it is it's fine we just want you home and that's true but use that four months and you know time after that as well if, if some of your listeners have been home longer than that it's never too late it's never too late to start this but have these really explicit conversations with your partner about what do you need from me how can I help here And also come to that table with this is how I want to be involved you know I i I really like doing these things with the kids or I really hate doing these things with the kids and I don't really want to do it. Can we, is that okay with you? Are we on the same page about this? So explicit conversations with your partner about what your role is and where you fit into the family functioning and connection with your kids. One-on-one time with your kids.
0: You inspired an idea in my head just now that I haven't had before that when veterans deploy, the guilt is almost completely one-sided. It's on us. That the longer we are away, that there's a greater guilt. And the moment we come home, now we're trying to deal with that guilt. And I am i haven't been in this moment, but I'm positive we probably would go into it too fast and just try to, to do everything and make it probably overwhelming. Or even we probably pictured that these four months for the entire year that we were gone, maybe, and pictured how they were supposed to go, pictured the things we wanted to do. But I think it's also important to have, we were talking before we started recording about asking the simple questions of, How do you want me to come home to your kids, even like I've been gone for a while. What's something you want to start doing that? And I'm positive it would be something silly and stupid of how simple it was. Simple time bombs that we talk about in every podcast that letting it come on their terms is probably also a way to not overly run through the energy or even create maybe overwhelm on their part because they did learn to live without you and they've got to almost reconnect what you're talking about, remove that boundary to bring the emotional and the physical back together and help just ask your kids what do you want daddy to do more with you like that's a powerful question that puts the ball in their court and I'm, it's going to be something simple and but that's exactly what they need it's just the simple things not the complicated yes. things that we say in our head we don't need the long vacation we just need to play catch maybe in the backyard is probably what most eight-year-old boys would say to their dad like i've just really wanted to play ca- catch with you for the last year let's start yes
1: point- oh okay so a couple of things that y- You touched on. So that concept of the guilt and then the happiness to be home and not quite sure how to reintegrate, that's called boundary ambivalence in the research. And ambivalence is just this idea that you feel more than one emotion at a time, that you can feel excited to be home and guilty that you're home and sad that you're home and scared that you're home. And a whole range of emotions and your family might be feeling those things too, that it's, it's disruptive or it's scary, or they're not quite sure how to handle or how to talk to dad. Like there's a whole range of emotions. So the first thing with that boundary ambivalence or those mixed feelings is to talk about the feelings. And it's the same thing that we were talking about with the emotion coaching. Number one, name the feelings, all of them. So you can say, I feel scared and I feel angry and I feel happy and I feel joy and I feel nervous. Name all of the emotions and give your kids a chance to name those emotions too. Have some family, lots of family conversations about how are you guys feeling about dad being home and what can we do next? What can we do to make it better? So first thing, that same emotion coaching. Second thing is getting, you know, one suggestion you and I talked about before was getting started with 10-minute together time, one way to do that is to ask your kids, what do they want to do? And a simple way we did it in our family is we just sat down with our kids and said, you know, mom and dad want to start spending more one-on-one time with each of you, and we want to know what you want to do. And we gave them a blank sheet of paper, and they wrote their names in the middle, and they're just little kids. Not all of them can even write. And then they just, like a, a, a sunburst out of their name, they just started writing ideas of what they wanted to do, or for the kids that were younger and couldn't write, I was writing them in as they came up with suggestions, and we even had a two-year-old who couldn't write at all and couldn't come up with suggestions, so we just kind of made some ideas, and, and that printable that you and I talked to will have, you know, a hundred ideas of what you can do, so you could bring that printable to this discussion and say, hey, do the, highlight these or circle these. Which of these sound like fun for you? Because you're right. Your kids just want to be with you. They want to play catch with you. They, they just want to be with you, present with you, and so to tell them, like, hey, I'm here, and I'm going to do it. You tell me, how you want to do that? It's this really powerful connection.
0: What, you, what was the life like before you were impressed with the idea of ten-minute connection? Like, what 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 transpired in your life, or where were you at in your own life when that idea came about?
1: So I started grad school in my late 20s, and I was married. My husband and I moved to Seattle, Washington, and I was the field director for a research project up there that was called Flourishing Families, and in that project, we interviewed and videotaped 500 families interacting together, and we would go into the home, so I supervised the team. We had a team of 30 researchers there, and so I would train them, and um, and I was in charge of the whole program up there. So the researchers would go into the family's homes and they would videotape the mom and dad interacting, mom and child, dad and child and then they would have them fill out this large survey. And then we would get these videotapes back and we would code them both for the content of what they were saying, but even more for their nonverbal communication. So we would talk about, um, are they showing signs of contempt? Are they showing support? Are they showing validation? Are they showing love? And what does that look like? The purpose of this whole research project, and I was there for a little over two years, but the, the entire project went on for eight years. And it was looking at early adolescents, 10 to 14 year olds, and then it followed them all the way till they were about 20. And they wanted to say, okay, so now that these these kids are 20, who has jobs? Who, who, is, who are in good relationships? Who's been arrested? Who is, you know- Who's has, in the basement? Who's in the basement? Yeah, yeah, that happened a lot. <laughs> and then they wanted to look back and say, what were those families doing in the way they interacted with each other that led these kids on these paths of, of different, you know, outcomes? So I was there in research. I had no kids at the time. And I had some friends and we were at dinner one time and one of my friends was at dinner and he was kind of just this really confident but disengaged dad who didn't value family studies as a real course of study at all. And um, he said to me, okay, so what do I need to know? Bottom line, what do I need to know to be a good dad? And I knew enough from the research that you need to connect to your kids. You need to be present and connect with your kids. He's like, okay, well, how much, how much I'm like, well, every day. And, and he's like, well, I'm busy, you know, I'm busy, busy, busy. How much? And he just kept pushing me with the idea of like bottom line, what is the minimum investment I can do to make it meaningful? And at first, this was, this was 10 years ago. And at first I was really put off by that. Like, come on, man, why are you trying to put in the least possible amount of investment into your kids? But I really wanted to have a good answer because I get it, life is busy and not everybody feels the same value and connection in being a parent as others. And I get it, that's fine. So what is it? What is that bottom line? And so I really started stewing on it. Like connection matters and more connection tends to be more beneficial for kids, but we have real lives and we have to not, give our whole lives to that and there's actually some really good research about how more of some of these parenting behaviors is not always better and that research is on monitoring of our kids so how much do we monitor like helicopter parent our kids and what what the research shows is that as our monitoring goes up our children's well-being also goes up so it's it's a good job to be involved know what your kids are doing know who they're playing with know where they're going that is good but it reaches a point where that stops And then if you continue to monitor, monitor more after that point, your child's well-being goes down, that it's actually negative for kids for that to happen. And I think that's true with connection too. We want to connect with our kids, but we also want them to be able to thrive out in the world without us and to be independent. So there's this sweet spot, This we call it a curvilinear relationship in research, which is like a bell curve. It goes up at the top, it curves, and then it goes back down. So I really stood on it for years, thinking about what is the sweet spot? Is it 30 minutes a day? Is it 30 minutes a week? Is it uh, it a big trip once a month? Is it a date night? And what the research really points to is that smaller amounts of connection more frequently leave a lasting impact, leave a more profound impact. Now again, all connection matters. So if it's a once a month daddy-daughter date, that matters. If it's a once a year daddy-daughter trip, that matters. These all matter. But to really, really drive home and get to the heart of the most meaningful connection, daily small levels of connection are the most impactful. 10 minutes a day is at that sweet spot, long enough to be meaningful, but short enough that you really could get that done in in every day.
0: You hit a topic without hitting it, that uh, as veterans, we learn to live life as success and failure. And we're trained to avoid failure It all costs. Failure means people die. But as parents, failure is right up there next to oxygen. It, it's just as important to breathe as it is to learn how to fail. Is there a strategy that you've brought with your 10 minutes of together to teach failure within that?
1: So I, I would say to flip that concept of failure, um, there are few things parents do to fail in an immediate moment. Um because what happens with parenting is that we're looking at patterns over time. So if you yell and scream at your kids on one day, that's probably not a parenting win for that day. Yeah. But it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be a fail either, unless that's what you're doing every single day. And so when we, when we talk about failing as parents, I, I see that kind of problem that that creates. If, if you're trained to feel like all failures are unacceptable that makes it hard to realize that parenting is something that you can't be perfect at all the time. Nobody. What about
0: helping the kids fail? Cause that's just as important.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So this is really good research. And I, and I heard you mention this on another podcast with the growth mindset. And so teaching our kids to have this growth mindset and the growth mindset is this idea that you can fail and you can get better, that I have the capacity to learn and to improve and that failure in and of itself is not a problem unless I stop trying. And that research is really, really powerful. I can tell you some of the background of that research if, if you're interested, or maybe that's something you've already talked about.
0: You can go into a little bit. We haven't it too, too much into it other than the word my growth mindset too much.
1: So the first researcher that um, introduced this idea of growth, growth mindset it was named Carol Dweck, and she's from Stanford University. And what she was looking at was how we praise our children, especially in elementary school. That was the, the age of kids that she was studying. And what she did was look at groups of fifth graders, and she pulled them into two groups, and they did a task, like some you know worksheet that they did in class. And regardless of how the kids actually performed on that task, they praised one group of the kids for their outcome, like you are so smart, you must be the smartest kids in the class, but it's this internal trait, like you have smartness. And then the other group, they praised them for their effort, that you tried really hard, I saw you working through the problems, you must have learned a lot in that process. So they split them into these two groups, praise for, smarts, praise for intelligence, and praise for effort. And then they gave them a second task, and they asked them, on this next task, it's going to be a little, you can choose to do a little bit harder task that you probably won't get all the answers right, or you can choose to do an easier task, but since you're so smart, you know, you're going to have no trouble. The kids who were praised for how intelligent they inherently were, were more likely to pick the easier task. And the concept there is that they were too afraid to fail because failing meant that it was threatening that concept of like, I am a smart kid, and but if I fail, I'm no longer a smart kid. Whereas the other group, the group that got praised for their effort, they were much more likely to pick the hard task, even though they knew they were going to fail. So that just immediately in a one-day research, we see this difference in how children behave when we tell them you're smart versus you work hard or you you put a lot of effort in that. But then here's one thing that I think is so powerful about that research. At the end of the day, the researchers asked the students to self-report their scores on all of these different activities. The kids who had been praised for their natural intelligence, they lied. Even though it was an anonymous self-report, nobody was going to associate their scores with them as individuals, but it still mattered to them to perpetuate this idea of this is who I am, and they lied about it. So that kind of initial research really sparked this growth mindset movement. So growth mindset is this idea that I can learn, I can fail, and it's okay. The opposite of that is a fixed mindset. A fixed mindset is that however smart I am, I already am. No matter what I do, I'm not going to get more smart. And it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult place to be in, especially when you do fail, because all of us fail. Because when you fail, all of a sudden you are a failure and you can't fix it, versus on the growth mindset side, when you fail, it's just another way you learned to not do that, and you do it different another way, and you, you try again. Um, at my kid's school, their school counselor teaches growth mindset to the entire school, and they have posters all around the school that say things like, it's a not yet moment. So instead of saying, I'm bad at math, you can say, I don't know math yet, or I haven't gotten the answer to this yet, but that I have the capacity to do it in the future. And I think that growth mindset matters a lot for parents, especially if you're reevaluating your parenting, you know, based on some of the things we've talked about and said like, ah, yeah, I'm not doing these things. That's fine. You have tomorrow. I've seen it come up
0: in sports a lot where a parent, for the result of winning the game, and maybe it was an easy opponent, and then they reach a hard appointment our hard opponent and they just collapse. They want to give up because they no longer have that taste of winning and they want to quit that sport because they, they were based their entire personas based on that result. And I can also see like by doing the result, you're also making the early stages of like imposter syndrome when they're an adult that they've been told this persona all their life. And when they no longer feel that inside, they perpetually become this person that they're not, which then decreases their authenticity and authenticness and which then makes them, more disconnected from society because people don't like unauthentic people. And then you're just dealing with the basic imposter of you feel like you're living a lie. You don't deserve what you have in life because it wasn't about the effort you put into it to get where you are. It's somehow no one said, man, that CEO is the smartest guy in the room. It's about the effort it took that CEO to get there, which is a different way to get to the top.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Some of the research on growth mindsets shows that this transitions during elementary school. If you ask kindergartners or first grade first graders, if they're good at reading or they're good at math, almost all of them say, yes, I'm good at this. I'm good at everything. I can do all the things. And by the time you get to fifth grade, almost none of the kids say they're good at it. Like, like 10% of the kids say, yeah, I'm really good at math or I'm really good at reading. Even kids who are good at math and reading, they're much less likely to say, yeah, I'm good at those things because of that idea of are we training our kids to feel like, hey, you can be good at something as you continue to learn, or are we training them to be like, you either are, or you're not good at this. You either are CEO style, or you're not, you either are a basketball star or you're not. And that is really harmful for kids and for adults. And yeah, it breeds that imposter syndrome that I'm not these things instead of I could be these things. I'm just not yet.
0: Yeah. Like the, if when people say when they have the, I'm not sure what to call it, but when they break up impossible to say I'm possible and like, that's really like, I'm possible. At anything, anything that's impossible is just something I have yet to learn, and learn how to, to do.
1: Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's, exactly what growth mindset is about.
0: Well, Alyssa, we could talk forever. I'm positive of that as based on the conversation we've had just now. If get anyone listeners want to follow of anywhere information from you, where can they find you?
1: So I'm on Instagram right now and my handle is at 10 minutes together. And then that will be expanding moving forward to Facebook and to um, a webpage. And I am planning on putting together some workshops and digital courses that are for specific groups. So I'm going to start first with just parent and children together. And then my next level is going to move to siblings together and, and creating 10 minutes together for your siblings. And that is actually one of the best ways to address sibling conflict instead of punishing your kids for fighting or worrying that you have to solve it for them. Get them to spend good quality time together that matters. And then I want to expand into dads specifically. So potentially a digital product that is just for dads, like how to, how to get involved in this 10 minutes together. Um, So I I will have those things moving forward. And then I'm going to be doing a challenge coming up, just a seven day challenge on jumping in, jump starting this 10 minutes together if you don't know how to start. So that's where I'll be online right now. I'm just on Instagram.
0: Awesome. Well, Alyssa, I have, like I said, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I know we bought, we brought, thousands of dads home at some point through people listening to this podcast in the future. And it's been awesome.
1: Let me say to you also, thank you for this audience um, and for the work and the service that you're doing here, because it's an important audience with a lot of good work to do. And thank you to your listeners for their service and for taking on the struggle and the challenge of reconnecting. When you get back, it's not easy but it's worthwhile. And again, remember, all connection matters. Every single ounce of connection that you have with your kids, verbal and nonverbal, every smile, every hug, every minute that you spend together, it all matters. It's all of benefit. So start today. It's never too late and you can do this. You're doing a great job already.
0: You'd probably like this. uh, I heard it recently from a guy on LinkedIn. uh, The best thing a veteran needs to hear isn't thank you for our service. It's welcome home.
1: Ooh, I like that. Welcome home and stay home and be home and be physically home.
0: Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter what stage of their life they're at. Like, just welcome home. Like, they were away and now they're home. Like, that's the feeling of being home. That's what we want more than like thank that. you for All right.
1: Friends. Well, let me say that then. Welcome home. And and your family wants you to be home. Be home.
0: And now you've said it to all the dads listening, and now they feel that much more connected to go home and be the badass dads, create the yes, legacy we you. want to be. That's a wrap. And thank you for listening to today's show, and I really hope you enjoyed it. The lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it, and you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.